Hey there, welcome back, everybody. This is the Taking Care of Business podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Trotencheck. Um, you know, we are headed into the, the final, I, I guess we can really say the final weeks of 2020. And, uh, and I, for one, and I'm sure there are others out there that aren't going to be exceedingly upset that 2020 is coming to a close. But I know uh, as we are in these waning weeks of the year, uh, a lot of people are starting to think about 2021 and and what lies ahead and what, uh, you, you know, what you want to do with your businesses, what initiatives that you want to engage in. And, 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 and us here at NHPA and, and like a lot of you guys, not only look at uh, financial goals, but you also certainly look at non-financial objectives for businesses. And given everything that's gone on, in 2020, I, I know that a lot of companies are looking at things like diversity and inclusion and how that factors into their businesses. And, and we've addressed that issue here before on the show, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it again today. But, but also we want to get people thinking about you know, 2020 is on its way out, but that doesn't mean any of the issues that have come up in 2020 have, have, have magically disappeared. And so whether it's keeping your staff safe, focusing on things like diversity and inclusion, uh, focusing on other non-financial um, objectives for your business, uh, you really have to keep that front and center. And I think when, when we went through all these discussions earlier in the year about things like inclusion um, and diversity, everybody you know, rises to the occasion in the moment and says, we want to do this and we want to do this. But the really hard part about this is keeping this at the forefront every day. And after the immediate kind of surge of interest and surge of concern wanes that that you continue to focus on these kind of things, and and that's what we're here to talk uh, to our guest today about. And and our guest today is and I don't know how to put this politely. I was going to say an old industry friend, but that's not quite fair. It, it is an industry friend that I have known for the better part, if not more than two decades. And today, um, as our guest, we have Sonia Ruff Jarvis. And Sonia is an author, an industry consultant, and she is the founder, owner, and operator of the Home Improvement E-Retailer Summit. Sonia, so good to have you on the program today and good to see you, albeit uh, virtually. We usually, uh, every year, Sonia and I typically try and sit down and at least have lunch once a year. It's usually the last day of the National Hardware Show. Uh, we didn't get to do that this year. So so I guess this is kind of our, uh, we, we, we talk on the phone regularly, but I guess this is our face-to-face -face for the year as we're going into the last weeks. But Sonia, so glad to have you on our program today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I guess this will be our recap lunch <laughs> yeah. for the year, right? We should have brought sandwiches or usually we, we might even have a cocktail during lunch. But uh, but no, we were on the up and up today. Not even a not even a cup of coffee in front of me here. But uh, Sonia, like I said, you and I have known each other. Honestly, I mean, I'm trying to think back. I know it's at least been a couple decades that we worked together. You were with the you were with the National Hardware Show for a long time. And before yeah. that, you were in publishing in the industry and our past had certainly crossed. Maybe you could start by sharing with our uh, audience just a little bit about your background and how it kind of led you to what you're doing today. Sure, for sure. Well, I think that we can all agree the beauty of our industry is that while people may move around to different companies, we love the industry, right? So we stay within it. Oh. And a lot of our connections and contacts really turn into friendships. So I appreciate your friendship over these past years, and I, can, I really consider you a friend. Um, my background, I have an MBA in marketing. So my background really is marketing. I love marketing. I started in the home industry, I hate to say it, but back in 1989 um, <laughs> on the B2C side on, in media, right? So I was the director of marketing for Unique Homes Magazine, which is a luxury consumer publication that you may see on airport newsstands still, right? Like, so it deals with street strictly with high-end real estate. Um, and then I went over and became the group director of marketing for Home Mechanics Magazine and Popular Science Magazine at Times Mirror, which is now owned by Time Warner. And I believe Home Mechanics evolved, and I'm not sure where that stands, but Popular Science still is a mainstay sure. publication on the business consumer side. 
From there, I went to LeVar Friedman and um, ended up, uh, started as the marketing director of the then Home Channel News, but then ended up being the group director of conferences for Chain Store Age, Retelling Today, Drugstore News, and then now HBS Diller, right? Yeah. Um, so from there, I moved from media and I moved into um, trade shows. So I was at media publishing marketing, but also event management strategy development and went over to the national Harbor show as the director of marketing in 2004. Um, and it's just such a great show. Right. And was able to really, and every, I gotta tell you, I feel really blessed, Dan, because in every job I've had, I've been able to add my entrepreneurial spirit to it and put my spin on it. And when I was at the National Harbor Show, there was definitely a gap in understanding the consumer, our, our customer, right? Um, and so I developed a customer model called the Target Attendee Program, which really went out and and got customers involved in stake ownership of the show. And we saw tremendous success with that. And senior management came to me and said, hey, we've had such success with this model you developed. Can we try it on a different show that is just so polar opposite of the hardware show? Can we try it on Global Gaming Expo, which is a casino show? So we tried it on G2E, and it worked just as well, if not better. And so... We decided to roll out Target Attendee Program to all of its um, U.S. shows that would be applicable. I became the vice president over at Reed Exhibitions and was in charge of 21 shows for the Targeted Attendee Program. Had people yeah. reporting up to me, rolling it out. I went over to um, China, rolled it out over there. They rolled it out worldwide. So from there... Um, it was really great, but I was traveling so much. Tuesdays to Thursdays, just traveling every week. I had a young child. Seven years ago, I walked away from corporate America and hung my shingle out and became an industry consultant. And I have not looked back because while corporate roles have always allowed me to kind of develop, I've always developed and added on to my positions. I mean, it's just been, and, and I think all those experiences added to me being able to be independent in, yeah. in developing, you know, my own company. Um, so that's been exciting. So now I've gone into the consulting side, um, industry consultant to companies that are trying to do a lot of different things, right? Um, I really just approach it like what they want to bring me up a board on and what, how I can help them. Right. And sure. then I'm also, um, I published two books. I'm the author of um, mindful minutes, which is everyday marketing experiences and how we can incorporate it in our lives and, and what we see and how we learn from that. And then I also was involved with an anthology called mentoring moments to help young girls really understand like the things that you need to go through to grow and um, how to overcome obstacles in your life. Um, I write a blog every couple weeks that can range from anything really like it could be marketing, but it also like for October, I gotta be honest with you. It was, um, breast, breast cancer awareness. Right. Okay, so, sure. and I am a breast cancer survivor. It will be in January, 21 years. And so this 20th year, I took out my old journal through my breast cancer journey and I looked at it and it was the first time I really opened it since then. And I wrote a three-part series on my blog about that time. And it was really putting myself out there because I looked at it through a lens of being on the other side. So my blog can really just share with you anything. It could be personal. It could be professional. Um, it could be whatever I'm going through at that time. And then, of course, um, like I said, customer insights and understanding customers, like through the targeted attendee program, is very important to me. And so... One of the things I kept hearing right when I left corporate America was, gosh, how do we get our arms around the internet as a distribution channel? You know, our industry has always been a laggard when it comes to digital uh, technology and understanding e-commerce and how does, you know, the internet really work. And so I developed the Home Improvement e-retailer Summit, which really focuses on um, 
understanding what's going on in the marketplace right now from an e-commerce standpoint, but also kind of matching up people to um, be able to have really genuine conversations one-on-one um, and then creating a networking environment that really is intimate and relevant. And once again, I hate to keep overusing a word, but genuine. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, I mean, through all that stuff and I'd encourage you and before we get off here, I want uh, people to know where they can find your blog and where they can find more information about some of the things you do. But I know what, you know, kind of what led in some ways to our conversation today was just a conversation you and I were having before. And, and, and in some ways, um, you, you know, you, you know, a lot of people in the industry, you've been around the industry for a long time, as, as you've kind of illustrated with your background, you've interacted with retailers, you've interacted with manufacturers, distributors, kind of, kind of everybody in the industry. And, and recently here, you know, as, as not just the industry, but you know, the, uh, the uh, planet in general has been thinking more about diversity and inclusion. You were kind of, and I, I, I don't want to, mistake this, but kind of in some ways thrust into this position of, well, that's something else you can talk about. I mean, for those who don't know you, I know so many people do know you, but for those of you who don't know you, you're a woman of color and, and, and that's a bit um, outside the typical of what you see in the industry. And that's not at all to say that it doesn't exist. You as well as I do know that it, that it does certainly exist, but um, this industry tends to be a little bit on the homogenous side. There's a lot of, of um, you know, and it's just simply demographics, um, older white males that are in, in kind of leadership's positions in this industry. And that's how the industry developed. But obviously that's starting to change. And I think companies, uh, whether they be retailers, distributors, manufacturers, factors are certainly more um, cognizant uh, of the fact that not only is it beginning to change, but it's probably something that is uh, a bit overdue. And so now in your role and in your position, you're, you're beginning to kind of consult and talk about uh, this, utilizing your, your unique knowledge of both the industry, but your own unique experiences as a, as a woman of color within this industry. So so maybe talk to us a little bit about kind of how this factors into your worldview in the industry and what are you kind of doing in this area right now? What are some of the things that, that that you're doing and, 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 and how, how do you see awareness in this industry on this topic kind of increasing or, or changing? Sure. I mean, you said it best. I mean, let's be honest. I hit two. I really hit two verifying characteristics, right? Of um, From a race standpoint, African-American, and from a gender standpoint, being a woman. So I think I have a unique voice from the trenches of our industry, right? Just uh, being in it from a young woman, now being a middle-aged woman. So, you know, I grew in it, so it is possible. But I think what's interesting is that um, while I have a business-to-business voice, right, I also add the consumer shopping voice. Sure with my unique glance or how I'm treated as a shopper, being an African-American woman. Um, So I think that, you know, I see how retail works on the back end through like just my knowledge and experience, but working with customers, but my shopping experience shows me sometimes the ugliness of the front end. Right. Yeah. So, um, I just really think that one of the things when I work with customers, I mean, we all want to think like we're not prejudiced. We don't have biases, but we all carry them. Right. And my mother used to always say, you know, look in the mirror first and we can't help but to cover by carry biases because we all have our own baggage. We have all our own culture. We have our own, how we came up, you know, in the world. And I just think that the most important thing is to, acknowledge certain things exist, right? Right. And then try to move towards to adjusting your behavior as the world is shifting. I mean, we cannot ignore what is going on in our country as much as we want to try. We just can't. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't put anybody down. It doesn't, you know, it's just the reality of it. Right. And um, it's unfortunate, but, and you know, 
inequality does exist, you know? So um, it's a hard and uncomfortable conversation for so many people, but inclusion doesn't mean that you're subtracting institutional knowledge, generational knowledge, you know, family knowledge. It just means that you're adding to that, you know? And there's opportunities with that addition to expand your customer base, to expand the integrity of your brand, um, to expand the integrity of your brand promise, right? So it's a hard conversation and it can be very grating at times, but um, it's a conversation I think that is worth having. And I think in a lot of instances, big boxes right now lead um, and I don't know that they're necessarily leading in the right way. And we can talk about that as we get into some of the nitty gritty. But um, I think that this is really an opportunity for independence lead because they are community leaders in so many ways. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's just so much opportunity out there. But I think the first square is to start number one with having an uncomfortable conversation because we know when you're uncomfortable, that's when you generally stretch. Yeah. And and I think you touched on a really interesting point there is that, is that we all carry uh, baggage or prejudice or whatever it is. And and rather than, I, I mean, I think right now, I mean, let's face it, we're in a very polarized world. So I think some people feel that admitting that, they may carry some baggage or even unconsciously have some kind of biases that, that it means that, Oh, I'm, I'm saying I'm a racist or, or I'm saying that I'm a misogynist or, or, or whatever it might be. But, but, but as you illustrated here, everybody has that. And really on any journey, the first step is saying, well, I am this, or I might be this. And, and, and you might not even realize it. And, and, and as I've thought through this, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a white male, middle-aged white, white male, but I mean, I have had things in my professional life that have caused me to open my eyes and say, you know, gosh, I never realized that I was doing this and I was never ill-intentioned or felt that I was ill-intentioned in doing this. And it was uncomfortable. And one of those things, which, which I think is sort of, safe to talk about because it, uh, it isn't necessarily anything, uh, um, uh, gender wise or, or, um, or racial wise, but years ago, about 10 years ago at, at NRHA at the time, we, we, we went through a lot of management training and, and, and it was kind of the vision of our CEO to get everybody to just become better managers. And, and as part of that training, you know, we talked, we had everybody be like, do these 360 evaluations where we were critical of one another in, a, in hopefully a, a positive way. And one of the things that was brought up to me was um, that, uh, you know, I, I, uh, people that know me and work with me, I mean, uh, on the disc scale, I'm a high ultimate D and, and I'm type A kind of personality. And, and, and people would say, you know, Dan, every time you walk into a meeting room, you sit at the head of the table, whether it's your meeting or not, you sit at the head of the table. And that sends the signal to people in the meeting that kind of like, what's this guy doing? Why does he want to take over this meeting? And in my mind, I mean, you know me, Sonia, I'm a big guy. And for me, it was always, well, I don't want to be crammed shoulder to shoulder with everybody. So I'm going to sit where I'm not going to be anybody's personal space or I'm not going to be. So that's all I was thinking about when I would sit at one of the heads of the table. But other people in the meeting saw it as this guy's trying to take over the meeting by sitting at the head of the table. And when I was made aware of that, it was uncomfortable because I was, you know, first I was defensive and I was like wanting to argue my point. But then it doesn't, then I thought it really doesn't matter as much what my point was as the way other people were perceiving it. And, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about is, is there are a lot of things that I look back on in my management career and say, wow, maybe I should have been more cognizant of that, or maybe it would have been, I I could have done something differently if I at least was more self-aware about things. And that's what you're really talking about here is just, it's not right or not wrong. And I think when I explain to people, well, here's how, why I do that. A lot of them probably said, oh, okay, I get it too. But it was a learning and a teaching moment for all of us. And that's what I think we have to go through now on, on things like gender and, and, and inequality and racial issues is, 
it doesn't make you a bad person. Listen, there are people out there. They're just, I mean, look, I'll say they're just bad people that they, that they think things, uh, you know, and they hold these beliefs that to me are, are negative beliefs, but 99.9% of the people out there, most of the problems we face are from this kind of unconscious thing where they're really not thinking about their biases or baggages. Is that kind of what you see or am I, am I, characterizing it wrong but because when you add all those unconscious things up it becomes an issue yeah i mean listen i just wrote an article should be coming out soon in hardlines uh, the canadian um, media and it's all about i believe um my personal experience with retail and racism in america and it's true i don't think that people know the signals they're sending. I don't think that people even realize that the receiver is recognizing what they're doing. I mean, I have a 13-year-old daughter. I mean, I ha- our family is interracial. My daughter is biracial, but her skin color looks more like me than her, you know, father. And um, she you know, I have to have these conversations with her, like, mommy, why are they following us around in a store? And, you know, a lot of this is about, listen, I have my MBA. I, I make a pretty good living. My husband's an attorney. We live in a pretty nice looking house. But when we walk in, we, I mean, you know, we're dressed pretty nice, you know, but people still follow us around the store. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are conversations. I think when you when you think of things business owners can do specifically, I think you observe your customer service people on the floor. You see things like that happening. It's kind of like back to see if you see something, say something. It's not right. necessarily you know, it's not that they're not doing it on purpose. They right. just believe you know that all black people still. Right. Yeah. So we got to follow them around the store. Well, you cannot generalize. All black people don't steal. All white people are not honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is that no one wants special treatment. No one wants that, you know, preferential treatment. I think from my standpoint, I can only tell you my voice as an African-American woman and as, you know, is that people have the desire to be treated equal. Yeah. So while they're following me around the store, there might be a white person stealing because now like I'm that distraction. Well, and and I distinctly remember, you know, I started in this industry. I, I came from a background in publishing and, and journalism, and, and I started in this industry 25 years ago. And I remember back then, one of the topics for discussion was women, you know, kind of working in hardware and women present in the DIY uh, communities. And just 25 years ago, I'm not saying that it was... Um, uh, an uncommon occurrence, but probably not as common as it is today. I mean, I think today you look around and there are so many more women running hardware operations or in leadership positions in hardware operations. And I, I distinctly remember writing articles 20, 25 years ago um, about you know, this kind of, again, somewhat conscious, but also somewhat unconscious bias of either consumers coming into a hardware store and the the woman uh, manager coming to work with them and say, no, 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 I want to talk to somebody who knows about hardware and home improvement. I don't want to talk to a woman. Um, And, and we kind of wrote about, well, here's how you overcome that, you you know? And the other side is we had to talk about the very real issue of um, women going into a hardware home improvement environment and being somewhat condescended to uh, of the the male employees saying, well, well, let me tell you how to how to hold a hammer, sweetheart, you, you know, and things like that. And uh, and and that has changed so much in 25 years. And and, and again, I, I think even if you take that last scenario, it wasn't 
I, I don't think 90% of the, the men working at hardware stores were trying to say, well, I don't think a woman could do this or should do this. I think most of them were just operating with their kind of frame of reference. And, and, and that's uh, the way I see it is, is somewhat similar in, in kind of along the racial lines that you're talking about is that sometimes it's not coming from a bad place. It's just coming from, this is what I knew. This is what I, the environment I grew up in. And now it's kind of manifesting itself in this business environment. The one thing I would say that, that gives us hope or, or, or some degree of positivity is 25 years ago, we were talking about this with women and I'm not saying it's gone by any means, but I do think to a certain degree that seeing women shopping at home improvement stores, not a lot of employees will say, you know, honey, how to, you know, let me talk to your husband about how to do this. And the same thing is a guy walks into a home improvement store and a woman comes up to help, help them. I don't know that there's as many questions about, is this person qualified to help me out? And, and so, but that took some uncomfortable feelings to get to that place. And now I just hope, and I think what you're trying to consult with companies on is that's okay to feel uncomfortable about what's going on with, with, with racial issues and say, you know, it's really not a lot different than what we dealt with, 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 with the, the women. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways, but we have to be uncomfortable before we get comfortable. Yeah, and I think that the one driving force that's different before we talk specifically about women and gender is that a lot of the conversation driven right now, race, is being forced upon us with what's going on in the country. Right. So it's not just an automatic, natural, okay, we need to start shifting. We need to start inclusion. It's really kind of being, I don't want to say forced on us, but you can't put your, like I said before, you can't put your head in the sand. Right. Yeah. So, so what do you see kind of, what do you see kind of happening out there? What are some of the common issues, you know, whether it's on the gender side or on, on, on the race side, what are some of the common issues that when you're working with businesses that kind of cause pain points or, 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 you know, I made some statements about how I feel we've evolved. Do you feel we've evolved? I definitely think on the gender side, we've definitely have evolved, right? I mean, it's been a slow shift, but it's been a shift. And I think, you know, the male mindset in our industry is shifting. And I also think society is shifting as far as the um, willingness to admit the competency of women and that they can essentially do anything. It just depends on what woman it is. Once again, not generalizing and putting everybody into one bucket. And I think the shift has a lot to do from the independent side with generational with, I call them like my daughter, she's a girl dad, right? Um, And if you look back way in the beginning of our industry, there weren't a lot of women taking over their dad's businesses, right? There weren't a lot of girl dads out there. And if they were, they weren't really inheriting the business. Like the only one I can think of from 20 years ago, and I'm sure there was more, but one that famously stands out is Maggie Hardy with 84 Lumber, right? So now I think as you look across the country, as you look across North America, more girl dads are taking over their, their, their family businesses and are part of that succession. Right. And so that is a, I think a major shift going on um, in the industry. Um, And I think that leaning into those girl dads voices and, and what they bring to the, to the business is really um, adding to the customer base, right? Because there's probably been that void of a voice present and now it's embracing uh, additional shoppers. So I think that that is um, really obvious shift that's happening right now from an anecdotal standpoint, right? I mean, I think, you know, in the future, you'll, I believe that the shift will continue to happen and you'll see more and more women leaders in our industry. Um, I think that the big boxes, the ones that, you know, are traded on the market will publicly will have to be forced to bring in more and more uh, women to represent them. I think you'll see their board room, uh, board uh, 
room shift a little bit, you know, they'll bring in more um, different races. They'll bring in, um, you know, more women, you know, I mean, and I can't speak on it, but I think one of the real underrepresented um, diverse groups in our country is the disabled. Yeah. So, you know, I just think that from a from a gender standpoint, though, in our industry, I believe women will continue to um, be recognized for what they can bring to the business. Yeah. And 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 along with women, what, what, you know, along kind of those those racial lines, I, I know that that we have certainly tried at hardware retailing to make a more concerted effort to try and profile more ethnically diverse leadership. And and I'll just tell you from my position with the magazine, it is difficult to um, to uh, find those leaders. It's not it's not a big Rolodex of of ethnically diverse leadership. And and again, I I want to clearly point out that does not mean it doesn't exist. There are thirty five thousand storefronts uh, in the United States. And, and, and I guarantee you, there are many of those that are run by, um, very competent people of all, uh, of all backgrounds. Uh, but it is not easy to drill down and find those leaders to profile. And, and, you know, we had someone who leveled a criticism against us once and very rightfully so saying, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, minorities who work in our store and every month they pick up your magazine and they really struggle to find people who look like them in positions of leadership in the magazine. And that I, I took that criticism criticism very seriously. And I know it's, it's part of what we want to try and continue to do saying that it's hard to find doesn't mean is not an excuse. Um, you know, we need to find that and profile it. And do you think that, you know, the emergence of someone like Marvin Ellison, who is a, a, a man of color running a, a large home improvement company, do you think that, that, that kind of shows that maybe the, the industry is more open to that or it's, it's, it's changed beginning on the racial front, or are we really just kind of at the, um, at the beginning of that um, kind of journey? Well, I think that timing, just my personal opinion is I think that timing just happened well yeah. for Lowe's, right? right? It wasn't thought out. It wasn't a Jackie Robinson strategy, right? Yeah. But right. Marvin, Allison finds himself in that position. And I think that that is an amazing and awesome responsibility to be able to shift our industry forward faster. Right. Um, I think that the biggest issue you're going to hear from clients, because I hear it from them too, we hear it from your readers. And I think that this is where Marvin Ellison's going to be helpful and people like him, um, because I'm sure there's people in, you know, secondary judiciary management roles that, like you said, are, are there, but we're, we don't know them personally. Right. Is that the biggest thing is there, there no black, there's no black talent talent, right? They say it's hard to find black people. Like it's hard to find that talent. Well, just like anything else, you put together a strategy for inclusion of whatever you want to concentrate on. And then you start implementing tactics, right? I mean, there's tons. I don't think that that's an excuse. I think that you know, there's there's very good black talent out there. And you just have to be able to be open to it, to figure out where it's at, and to be able to, quite frankly, attract it. Um, Maybe in the independent communities, it's more about um, recognizing where you can find it and then nurturing it. I don't know, but it is present and there's out there. um, And you just got to um, figure out how to do it. And I feel like... You know, it's not just about, you know, earlier I had mentioned, you know, that the big boxes lead, um, but I think that the independents can do much more because the big boxes lead by just throwing money at it and giving donations and supporting and giving it to this and that. But let's talk about the real difference, right? It's not about the money. Money helps, right? But it's about what, how does your organization look? How does it reflect, you know, the community that you serve? or not? 
Are you looking at increasing your, your community base and attracting people that don't all look like you, right? Um, yeah. I think that's it. You know, I, I just think that, but yeah, it's, it's great to see, you know, there, I think there's like five, five or six um, African-Americans or people, I should say brown, brown colored people that um, lead Fortune 500 companies. It's not that many. Right. And I just can't believe that the talent isn't there. Well, and I think to, to kind of echo something you said is that I think a big step is also, and, and, and we talked about this earlier in the year when we had uh, uh, the gentleman who runs True Values uh, Diversity and Inclusion uh, Program. And one of the things he brought up is, is that it also takes employers, um, boards of directors, um, people hiring for leadership positions to understand that diversity within an organization is an advantage that it, that it is by, by creating a diverse culture and creating a diverse set of points of view, whether it's, you know, African-American, um, different genders, uh, Latinx or um, uh, you know, LGBTQ, um, creating that different tapestry of, of leadership with an organization is a virtue for a lot of reasons. One, it, it, it gives you insight into different kinds of customer mindsets. It gives you radically different, in many cases, points of view or brings up things that you might not have considered. I mean, I think anybody has an easy time getting their arms around, well, why might I not want all of my leaders in my organization to be in their 60s? Because people can easily say, well, we want some people from younger generations that are more in tune with what resonates with younger generations, the, the technology perhaps, or, or, or uh, different cultural shifts that a 60-year-old plus might not recognize. But the same is true for, for all these different kind of uh, groups, that, that they all have different backgrounds. And the more you bring into your organization, the more it is a virtue. So, so when you're going out to look for someone, it's not just about, you know, oh, well, I want to hire a person of color or, or a, a different gender because I think it's, you know, because I think somehow it's, it's, it's all things are equal and it's going to be fine. There's actually a benefit to your organization for doing that. So let me ask you that, Sonia, as, as you know, it's one of the questions I add on here for you is what, what are some of the ways that you see companies not only addressing these issues, but benefiting? From when they when they actively start addressing um, these issues of, of bias, uh, equality, um, and inclusion. Right. Well, I think it all goes back to um, customer service in a lot of ways, right? Because if your customer can see, just like you were talking about earlier, if they, if your, your readers can pick up your publication and see themselves reflected back, that is a credibility issue, right? And that sure. adds credibility to your brand. And I feel right now that the customer experience kind of like is in that is in that gap and it, it bridges together customer service and employee engagement. Because let's be honest, the employee engagement is going to predict what happens with forward-facing customer service, right? And so the benefit of being able to bring the right person in, representing whatever diversity and inclusion objectives that you have that's implemented through a strategy is that you're going to have um, brand consistency, right? Sure. You're going to have um, attitudes matter when um, your employees and your customer service is forefront in that shopper's mind, right? And even when you look at the corporate world, right, and you see the bigger box people that have, you know, that are traded on the marketplace, if they have all non, if they all have all one kind of person, and let's be honest, I'm talking about. I wouldn't recommend that anybody have all black people that are 60 or all black people that are, you know, I mean, it really takes a lot of different looking kind of people to hopefully weave a pattern 
that gets you to how your company should look. And as your company looks and is integrated, that gets pushed down to employees. They start understanding the culture and then that gets pushed out onto the store floor. Right. Like it all just works together. And I think that diversity does add to, um, you know, because everybody says, oh, my customer service is the best. Is it really like, is it really like, let's, let's look at, is it really? (laughs) And and talk about um, if that's true. And I think not being honest about the lack of equitable practices by including diverse voices at the table and diverse voices throughout the um, hierarchy of your company is really not being willing to look at how America is shifting. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well put. And I mean, I think when you view it through that lens of um, customer service, which is really an interesting way to view it is you know, you have to understand as, as a retail business, you're appealing to all customers. And, and as an independent retail business, you are fighting tooth and nail for everybody you get in that door. Why not make your place the most comfortable for everybody in your community to come in and, 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 and identify with your team and identify with your business and, and really have that experience that reflects the community they live in as from a, from a tactical advantage on a customer service standpoint. So, so, so very interesting way to, to think about another advantage to considering inclusion and diversity in the workplace. Um, and I gotta say one more point to that is that, you know, I had said earlier something um, to the point that, you know, if you see something, say something, right? Because right. in this age of technology, everybody has video on their smartphones and it can be a PR nightmare, something that can seem so innocent and just so not meant to be hurtful can really spin out of control very quickly. Well, and you see that every day. I mean, if you're involved in social media, any place you see, and, and you know, there are, coming from every angle, not absolving any side in any of this, there are people out there that consider themselves provocateurs and, and, and look to amplify the more negative aspects of our interactions. And, and so to your point, um, yeah, a very, very important thing to consider is that without training and without some kind of um, some kind of consulting or some kind of insights into how to deal with some of these issues, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. And it's probably less of a when is or if something's going to happen and more of a when is it going to happen? When are you going to be? the new YouTube or TikTok sensation that's out there of someone criticizing your business for, for whether deservedly so or not deservedly. So you only certainly see one side in those interactions usually. And, right, and uh, right. I agree with you. And I also think that if you look at the big boxes, they've gotten it reverse, right? They don't have as many, I don't believe diversification in their corporate but they have diversification on their store floors, right? So a lot of people might come into more interaction with going into those big boxes with people that don't resemble who they're primarily around, right? And so they have to make sure that the interactions that their their, uh, store floor associates are engaging in presents a positive light on that kind of group of people, right? Well, yeah, and at the big boxes, there's also separation. I think most people, an everyday shopper at a big box goes into Home Depot and says, I identify Home Depot with the people I'm interacting with at Home Depot. There's that level of disconnect from what the corporate office looks like. I mean, I doubt I doubt your average person on the street could even tell you who the right. president or, or CEO of Home Depot might be, um, but they know the people when they interact with the store. So that is something that independent retailers probably need to be extra cognizant of yeah. that I, I, it's an advantage to me to say, this is my store. I run it. But at times it can also be a hindrance when 
when it's a, not a positive interaction that occurs right. in that environment. So right. I, I, I enjoyed our talk on this this morning, but before we, uh, as we're kind of running up against it on time here, um, I, I wanted to, before we uh, uh, leave the conversation is, you, you know, right now you're doing consulting on diversity inclusion and inclusion as, as along with some of the other consulting work you do. And, and, and as you stated to begin with, so much of your background is kind of in marketing. And I know a lot of the work you've done with businesses has been, on that marketing side. So, so real quick, uh, to, to squeeze a little bit of extra value for our listeners out of here, what are some of those marketing things when you're consulting with businesses on marketing that, that small businesses can learn from? What are those kind of top tips you could pass along to small businesses as it relates to marketing? Right. I mean, I think initially it's really simple to try to understand what's going on in the business. And there's two things that I like to focus on is, is there a gap in um, what is going on with the personalized marketing aspect, right? So is there a gap in personalized marketing can kind of be bridged by asking the same questions, right? Are you authentic? You know, what are you putting out into uh, the marketplace? Does it really reflect who you are or does it reflect who you're trying to be and then you can't deliver on it, right? Are you honest with your customer, right? Um, Are the things that they're getting? I mean, I can tell you I had to break ties with a a big box mass merchant because I felt their honesty wasn't there. We were buying, we bought a product that later found out that was re- um, refurbished, you know, you go in there and they add things onto your receipt and you take it back and they're like, okay, because they know they're doing it, right? So right. are you honest with your customers? Um, are you listening to your customers? I mean, like really listening to your customers and, and what does that look like? Are you listening to them and you're doing nothing and just saying, okay, this is what they're saying? Are you listening to them and identifying common themes that now you can adjust whatever you're doing strategically or even is it an easy um, tactical fix? Um, are you observing your workers and making sure that gap where you believe your customer service is so much better than everybody, is it really being delivered? You know, it's like, um, you know, your favorite pizza shop, you know, on Friday nights, you know, Friday night comes, you order your pizza and it's good. The next Friday night you order your pizza and it's not so good because it's two different people cooking it. Right. So how do you get, you know, that formula where you're consistently delivering excellence, where you can really metrically, you know, um, track it and measure it. Um, from the personalized standpoint, you know, is, are you set, uh, segmenting out your customers? Do you really know what they want? Do you know who they are? Are you talking to them? Are you being, you know, um, are you talking to them in the ways they want to be talked to? Are the younger people getting it on mobile? Are the older people, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, really personalized marketing that works for your different segments of customers. You know, I believe that you are only as strong as your weakest link. And if that communication with any particular market segment of your customers is weak, then, you know, you're going to see it in your sales receipts. If, if that gap is extended between who you say you are and who you present to your customers, it's going to be shown in your sales receipts. Well, it, it, great advice, Sonia. And I think that 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 it so often takes someone from the outside to kind of illustrate those things to you. I mean, I think that it's so spot on to say, if you're going to market and promote that you are X, you better be X (laughs) because otherwise you're lying to your customers and that's going to have more of a negative impact than the potential positive you can get from marketing it. And, and, And also the other point you made about understanding what your customers want. I think it was, and I talked about this so many times when I would speak to the industry about customer services. I mean, for so many years, retailers, independent retailers would define customer service in such a narrow box. It's like, oh yes, I have trained every one of my employees to when someone comes in the store, you walk them around the store and you help them with their project and you stay by their side and answer every question. And then recently, 
all the research shows that younger customers hate that. They don't want that. They don't, they feel like they're being watched. They feel like they're being judged. They feel like they don't, they want, you know, available service, but not that, you know, right there next to you, the whole experience. And, and it was so hard to convince people that that's because that's, if you're looking at service the way a 55 year old man wants to be serviced, as opposed to the way a 23 year old woman wants to be, you know, receive customer service, then, then you're completely looking at it through different lenses, which is a great way to kind of end our discussion because it ties back to this whole concept of diversity. And it's not just about, it's not just about saying, well, I want to, uh, you know, somehow pay respect to diversity because it's the right thing to do, but it's the right thing to do for your business because it gives you those different views. If you have younger women that are in your management team, they can tell you that's not the way we want customer service. (laughs) And the same thing with, with ethnic diversity or or gender diversity. I, I mean, you get all those different points of views, which makes you a better business. So, um, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this wide range of topics today. Where could our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about you or read your blog, find your books, that kind of stuff? Sure. Definitely uh, reach out to me on email at Sonia, S-O-N-Y-A, at Jarvis Consultants, plural.com. That's Sonia at Jarvis Consultants.com. Also, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at, art, at Jarvis Consult. That's at Jarvis Consult and um, also at eRetailer Summit. Um, Please feel free to send me an invitation to connect on LinkedIn. You'll find me on LinkedIn. Just put in Sonia Ruff Jarvis. Um, Also, my books are on Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, and also you can buy on my JarvisConsultants.com website. And then my blog, Sonia's blog, Breaking the Code of Excellence, can be found on JarvisConsultants.com. And also, we pretty much put it out on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, every every two weeks on a Thursday. Fantastic. Sonia, thank you so much. And thanks so much for your really unique view. And, uh, and, and hopefully in 2021, we'll get to have our annual debriefing lunch <laughs> and, and maybe have a glass of wine or a beer along with it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dan, for having me.